The following program is an exclusive C-Channel stereo broadcast. Subscribers who have cable FM stereo should turn the sound on their television set down and tune to the C-Channel frequency on their FM stereo tuner. Welcome to episode 121 of Junk Filter. My name is Jesse Hawken, and my special guest is Ed Conroy. He's a Toronto-based cultural historian. He's an archivist and online video producer, and the founder of Retro Ontario, a wonderful curated repository of local television clips. Ed, welcome so much to Junk Filter. Well, thank you, Jesse. It's an honor to be here. February 1st of this year is the 40th anniversary of the launch of Pay TV in Canada. Ed and I uh, love this stuff. We're uh, going to be giving the listener a little walk down memory lane, the history of pay TV, the various disasters that befell this burgeoning industry. You have to remember that this was 1983. You might have access to a video store, but for the most part, if you wanted to watch a movie, it was on television with commercials. This was this exciting new future of uncut, commercial-free new movies in your house. It was a very naive time, but for young people like Ed and I, this was like an exciting new future. <laughs> hey, Jesse, I, I don't know about you. I'm still excited about it. 40 years later, I, I still, uh, I cherish those memories because as a, as a young cinephile, you know, you, you teed it up there. I mean, it, it was the future. It was movies that you would hear about, that you'd read about uh, in books were suddenly on tap, like like going to get a glass of water. You could just turn it on. And I think it was so expensive, uh, certainly in the early days, that you know most people didn't have it, but everybody kind of knew somebody. There was a rich kid or somebody's dad had it or people had it at their cottage or something. And so you'd get a taste of it or you'd hear about it. And so it was this very exotic idea. You are about to enter the world of First Choice Pay TV. First Choice is different. Only First Choice has all new movies each month showing 24 hours a day. Movies like Star Wars and Blade Runner. Plus Playboy Weekend and exclusive monthly world-class sports like boxing. First Choice Pay TV has all new movies each month showing 24 hours a day. And they don't. Well, I was particularly obsessed with the pay TV preview channels that our local cable companies carried, where they had a reel that would rerun like three times an hour of the lineups for the various pay TV channels. And uh, I became chapter and verse familiar with a lot of the uh, trailer packages <laughs> for pay TV. It was so exciting. Yeah, man. I mean, the Superman 3 promo is like seared into my brain. <laughs> I think I saw it about 500 times in a month, but it was wild. And, you know, I, I remember I was the kind of kid that got up on Saturday morning and religiously went through the Star Week, the Toronto Star TV guide and made note of what films were going to be on, you know, TV Ontario or City TV. And often these were on at very inopportune times. I mean, it was like the middle of the night or, or, you know, during school hours. And it, like you said, it was before VCRs were sort of mainstream. 
And it was infuriating uh, because it was like you just couldn't uh, catch up to these things. So often the promo or the coming attraction reel, uh, you know, it was the closest you were going to get to something like Porky's, you know. I mean, that was the other enticing thing about pay TV is that, you know, they were promising uncut and commercial free movies, including movies with sex and violence in them. You know, we'll get into this as we get going. But, you know, this, again, was also kind of uncharted territory for your television set and your living room in the early 80s. Oh, mate. I mean, it was it was massive. There was always. The, the giant satellite dishes again that super rich people had or you know scary people had them and you'd hear about these 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 things in America you know like like HBO or Skinamax or you know Cinemax and the idea that you'd you'd see nudity or sex films um, was just like it was almost uh, too good to be true that idea but it was always told to me, you know, as a child that all oh, Canada is not going to go there. And, you know, we had the CRTC were very adamant about stopping those American broadcasters from coming up here and taking over pay TV, um, which is kind of, I mean, it doesn't really make a lot of sense because we were getting all those network, the, the big networks anyways, right? We were getting NBC and CBS and, and ABC. So really, would it have made that bi big of a difference if we did get HBO in the early 80s? I don't know. Well, you know, at the risk of boring the hell out of my international listeners, Ed, can you first of all explain what the CRTC did and the process of uh, their approvals of what we got to watch on television? So the CRTC, I mean, yeah, we, we're really getting into, into some boring stuff here. But they, really, the CRTC was set up to protect Canadian identity. I mean, I think that if you're going to sort of boil it down and they would be the sort of guardians of who, who got a license to broadcast. And they were very, very, very old school and they were partisan really as well, I think. And so all kinds of f interesting stuff I think was happening in the early seventies in, in Toronto. Um, and you had characters like Moses Neimer who, you know, infamous, infamous guy. I think your international audience might've heard of him because I mean, aside from being the subject of, of Cronenberg's, uh, great film video drome, uh, here, here was a guy that was sort of, um, putting into practice what Marshall McLuhan was talking about. And he, Moses Neimer saw, you know, pay TV as this very important thing that Canadians were not allowed to access. And so he, he fought the CRTC for many, many years and finally ground them down. And by the time we get to the sort of late seventies, early eighties, it was, I think the, the public was so ready and, and wanting a pay TV service, whether it was going to be the Americans or or a homegrown version of what the Americans were doing, they just couldn't fight it anymore. They just finally gave up. And then ironically, over the next few years, they kind of went a bit too crazy in terms of giving out licenses to anybody. Um, and again, you know, to, to step back for a moment, it's people of a certain age remember that time. They remember clearly having only 20 channels on on a television set younger people this is a very alien concept that you didn't have hundreds of channels and you didn't have access to to anything really um 
And nowadays, the problem is that we don't have enough time or interest to, to look at all these things, but they're available everywhere. Back then, it was the opposite. We had too much time and no access. And to make Canada sound even more boring, the CRTC stands for the Canadian Radio, Television, and Telecommunications Commission. Right. We love our commissions here. They, they, they decided pretty much, you know, what what you saw and what 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 level of violence, what level of um, nudity, what level of cultural appropriation. I mean, it, it it was it was Orwellian, really. Some of that stuff. Uh, when you look, I mean, if you're a real wonk uh, like myself, you look back on some of those hearings. And they were just grilling these guys and just put, you know putting them through the mill on very basic things. Um, why could you know the the fight for the uh, for the, uh, a channel called CFMT, better known as uh, Channel Forty Seven Cable Four, which was a um, an international channel, basically a channel that would show. Uh, I think it was eight or nine different languages, uh, news from around the world, and and you know specialty program aimed at the. Um, immigrant community in, in Toronto at the time, and you know they just tore these guys a new one, saying, "Why does why do we need this?" And it's 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 insane now looking back on that stuff. The CRTC also imposed conditions on Canadian content, uh, and that was across every every broadcasting service, radio and television. So these pay TV channels had to also to get their license promise that a certain number of hours of the day would be devoted to Canadian programming and that productions that this these channels would uh, produce had to have Canadian involvement in them. Yeah, those co-productions, I mean, that, that was really the Wild West there, late, late 70s, early 80s, when you had programs, um, like my favorite example is a program called Bizarre, I'm sure you remember that, that was being filmed in Toronto. And it was basically being, they would film two versions. It was a sort of sketch comedy program. And there would be this sort of, uh, you know, not, not necessarily a family version, but they do the sort of non-offensive version uh, that would air on, uh, I believe it was Global, the Global Network here in CTV. Toronto. CTV, sorry. I'm thinking Super Dave. And then they would uh, have the same skit, but with nudity in it. Uh, and that version would air on Cinemax in, in America. So, yeah, there was all kinds of money being left on the table. I think a lot of the business people that pushed them to allow finally to give out licenses for pay TV said, look, we're doing all this stuff already. And all that is all that money is going down to Hollywood. We might as well help the, the Canadian film industry as well. And they certainly did. I mean, mm -hmm. that, that was sort of I would say one of the greatest things to come out of all this was. It, it gave uh, back a lot of money to the to the Canadian film industry. It was, you know, it was an incredible challenge when they finally said, I believe it was in '81, um, when they opened the gate and said, "Okay, you know, we're we're taking submissions now." Um, you had all of these organizations, and some of them very strange bedfellows. You know, you had breweries uh, teaming up with broadcasters and um, everybody wanted a piece of the action because I think the other thing that happened was, again, there was a, a bit of uh, forecasting that wasn't 
really correct about how much how much money was going to be generated. I think they were talking in the early days that it was going to be generating hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. So of course it was gold rush. And you had people like uh, the aforementioned Moses Neimer had pretty much thought he had a slam dunk for a movie channel that was going to be called Premiere, and it was going to focus mainly on Hollywood films, but also there was a a huge component of Canadian films and, and Canadian content. But he got denied, and and that was kind of a that I would say the biggest shock then was that it made people realize that there wasn't a lot of logic in who got the licenses. It was, I'm sure favoritism. I'm sure people speaking a libel. I don't know. People were maybe being bribed, um, <laughs> but there was funny business. There's no doubt um, going on. I mean, in terms of some of the other big ones that didn't get the license, I don't know so much about the first wave. I know a lot more about when there was, the second wave, which was for the music channels and the sports channels and all that. Um, but obviously we know the the three big ones uh, in English-speaking Canada were, as we mentioned, First Choice, uh, the C Channel, and Super Channel. Well, First Choice had a bilingual license. That was the exception to the rest. So they also ran the French-language equivalent channel called Premier Choix. And then there were also uh, some licenses that were granted regionally. First Choice was a national license, and so was C-Channel. Super Channel originally was confined only to Alberta, and then they pulled a fast one just before the pay TV channels went on the air in February of 1983, where they scored a license that another channel had gotten in Ontario and basically gave it over to Super Channel so that they could be in Alberta and Ontario. First Choice was very surprised and upset about this because they expected to be the top channel just because of their national coverage. Uh, So all of a sudden, they're in competition with Super Channel in Ontario and Alberta, the two very large markets. So, And then the thing that frustrated First Choice about this as well is that Super Channel had double the movies that First Choice had. That's correct. And and Super Channel were very, uh, very good at what they did there towards the end. And they got a lot of broadcast. Uh, they got a lot of access to sports broadcasts. So th- they got uh, Toronto Blue Jays, some Blue Jays games, Expos games. They got, um, I believe they had some hockey. They had some other sporting events. First Choice had boxing, which... You know, that was, again, something I, I believe in the early 80s, If there, there was no such concept of, of pay-per-view. So I think if you wanted to watch a boxing match in Toronto, you'd go to a bar, you'd go somewhere that had a satellite dish, probably pay some exorbitant fee to get in to watch it, you know, on television. Suddenly you could watch a boxing match in your basement on First Choice. That was a huge deal. And then the other thing that First Choice snagged, uh, that they thought was going to send them to the moon was the Playboy content. You know, as we mentioned, that was the, the, the adult content that everybody wanted. It wasn't obviously pornography, but it was this idea that late at night, you you know, adults could, could watch Playboy content, but that ended up costing them a lot of other uh, content acquisition. For example, Disney, said you guys are showing playboy content you you cannot have anything from us uh, where super channel was kind of portraying themselves as 
a lot more family friendly. And they had these huge programming blocks in the morning that were super channel for kids. And, you know, they showed a lot of, of stuff for children. So it was all kinds of jockeying going on in, in those last few months before they went to air in terms of content. But what, like you said, that when super channel got Ontario, it went a bit wild because suddenly you had the, the studios in, in America probably couldn't believe their luck that here were these two channels in Canada going into bidding wars uh, for movies like Stroke or Ace, you know? Yeah. I mean, it was just just yeah. wild. And and so there was a lot of overlap with content, but sometimes, you know, the the whoever sort of got that title got a one-month window. So, you know, it, it would be on first choice for the month of May, and then it would come on Super Channel in June or vice versa. And so like you were saying earlier, being interested in all this when you were young – that was always funny to me is why did um, you know why did Cujo go on Super Channel first and and then on and then on First Choice none of it really made sense until I got older and and read about all why this stuff was happening but it was all very uh, fascinating back then and the other funny thing about um, the partnership between First Choice and Playboy was that the arrangement between these two channels was to co-produce adult entertainment that qualified as Canadian content. One of the series they produced shot in Toronto was called Girls in the Office. And so, of course, a lot of people were very concerned that Canadian tax-paying dollars was going towards funding adult entertainment and that the CRTC was allowing pornography to qualify as CanCon, etc. <laughs> There was another one that is legendary because I don't think, uh, to my knowledge, a- any of it exists anymore, uh, that was called Loving Friends and Perfect Couples. Yes. And it had uh, a very young Stu Stone appeared in, in some episodes of that. And the lovely Sherry Miller, who you might remember, was not only taking her top off in this program in the night, as she was the host of Polka Dot Door. Uh, the longest running children's show on TVO in the morning. So uh, what a wild time. This was like a soap opera that had nudity in it. And uh, again, like with Bizarre, I think they showed the sort of edited version on uh, Canadian networks. But if you wanted to see Sherry Miller naked, you had to watch it on First Choice. Take a sensual look at a new style in adult entertainment. You love me, you'll let me help you. Maybe I don't love you enough. With stories that capture your wildest fantasies. Is this a private party or can anyone join in? Where anything goes. And while I've been putting you off, I've been doing with every man who's been interested. And love is available anytime, anywhere. The three of us made love together last night. Let's admit it at least. Between loving friends and perfect couples. The tax shelter era of Canadian filmmaking also coincided with the beginning of pay TV in this country. And I want to talk for a couple of minutes about it. The accounting practice of scaffolding, which was happening a lot, especially with the programming, the original Canadian programming that First Choice and Super Channel were doing. Scaffolding is where an American network would provide a payment to the Canadian producer. And so for tax purposes here, 
the Canadian producer would uh, say that we've got a 100% investment in Canadian content, even though, let's say, 80% of that money is American money and 20% of it is Canadian money. For the CRTC standards, it would appear to be a 100% investment in Canadian content. Meanwhile, the program is being shot in America or their production office is in Toronto. Yes, a nefarious, uh, <laughs> nefarious practice that continues to this day. <laughs> but this was all stuff that is generally understood how you do business in terms of the film and television production in this country suddenly being uh, exposed <laughs> as somewhat of a racket. <laughs> totally. My goodness. And, and I guess, too, a lot of people look at some of this stuff now, these, these programs that were being scaffolded. Another favorite is The Hitchhiker, which was that sort of anthology wannabe Twilight Zone horror show that um, it just doesn't you, – you look at it now and, you, and if you didn't know what was going on with the business practice, why was this thing even made? But that's what it was. It was just a scaffold. Was The Hitchhiker even shot in Canada? I think the lead guy who was sort of the Rod Serling-ish hitchhiker – who narrated the episodes. Paige Fletcher, yes. But I think he might have been a Canadian actor, but I don't think the show was primarily filmed in this country. But it counted as Canadian. Right. And it was Riff Markowitz, the co-creator of Hilarious House of Frightenstein, that came up with that winner. Um, And again, it was, you know, I I think one of the later seasons ended up being shot in in Out West, um, but it was shown in various versions, like the violent version and then the clean version and um, has a very spotty history. So it's very difficult to, to even see a complete se- a season of it. Um, and historian, you know, television historians trying to piece all this together. I mean, you know, another great example of that, Jesse, was the last season of SCTV. Mm-hmm. Um, because I guess at that point it had bounced around all over the place. It had been on CBC. It had been on Global. And the final season was a a co-production between Super Channel and Cinemax. Um, That's right. After they left NBC, Super Channel and Cinemax got together and produced the final season of SCTV with a more bare-bones cast. Uh, Not the greatest uh, run of episodes, but some very, very funny stuff happened in that final season. It was uh, Martin Short. Andrea Martin, Joe Flaherty, and Eugene Levy with a few cameos from some of the other SCTV people. Uh, It's probably the most obscure stuff that uh, they did outside of the global years. But um, the Gimme Jackie documentary was part of that, for instance, (laughs) which is one of the funniest things they ever did. Totally. And, and, you know, likewise, it's... uh... It's kind of strange to think that they had the ability to do racier stuff, but they didn't even go there, um, which I think is pretty impressive. You know, whereas these other programs, oh, you know, we can go right into the gutter. We can have, you know, topless women running around in these skits, but they didn't do that. So props to them. One thing that I want to talk about with you, Ed, in terms of these three channels, First Choice, Super Channel, and C Channel, to my... uh starry-eyed teenage eyes each of these channels had their own personality absolutely absolutely Um, so so how would you describe the three personalities of these main pay tv channels okay so as a before i actually got to see any of them uh as a subscriber i would say first choice was kind of 
the Rockefeller channel. Like it was very slick and the graphics were very impressive and it had a very Hollywood feel about it. There's a whole world of entertainment out there coming to you on cable with First Choice, the biggest and the best in entertainment. First Choice entertains more Canadians than any other pay TV service. Movies, exclusive concerts, sports, blockbusters. First Choice is your only 24-hour coast-to-coast home entertainment channel. Come to the show. Come to number one for entertainment. Come to First Choice. Call your local cable company now. It seemed to get the newer films quicker than than super channel did and it you know it had playboy it had it had all this stuff that people were talking about uh, you know in the playground if you're ready for a grand adventure come along with sea channel you'll see the magnificent Pavarotti in aida you'll view world acclaimed films like the french lieutenant's woman or a top broadway musical like sweeney todd for many Canadians like me, C-Channel is pay television with a difference. Let me tell you why. World-class performing arts, theater, opera, dance, music, all in stereo sound from classical to contemporary, from Leona Boyd to Paul Simon. C-Channel was kind of, I mean... It was a Frankenstein's monster in a lot of ways of very highbrow content. So you had a lot of um, opera and classical music and jazz concerts and foreign films and NFB catalog titles. So as a kid, I'll be honest, it it wasn't, you know, it it just seemed like a grown-up channel to me. It's not until I was much older and I got to see some of it and realized it was really ahead of its time. It was too progressive, really, for probably for that era. Um, but it did have a, a, an air of being a little snobbish, probably, and being a bit highfalutin. And it was expensive. I mean, yeah, we should go back. First Choice uh, back then was $20 a month. So I guess by nature of being that expensive, it seemed like that was the coolest one. C-Channel was 15 bucks, And then Bold uh, Super Channel was 15 bucks as well. And it was a bit more folksy. It was a bit, I guess, because it was being produced out in the West. Um, it, <laughs> there was, you know, guy like the, the, he wasn't the host of the channel, but there was this guy called Fred Keating um, who would come on between films. And it was almost like an SCTV skit. Yeah. Uh, it was called Mailbag. And it was this guy, you know, reading letters that people had written in asking him, you know, when when is Porky's going to be on again? <laughs> a descrambler of some type is always necessary to decode a discretionary television signal. You see, the descrambler prevents the neighbors who may subscribe to cable but not to discretionary television from getting this service for free. Now, external hardware may be necessary depending upon your set and the type of system your cable company uses to send you, the subscriber, the signal. Why wasn't I aware of this when I bought the TV or the service? Well, you may not have asked the right questions because you didn't know which questions to ask. You may also have had an overeager or undereducated salesperson at the store or the cable company. They seem to have, I would say, the cooler Canadian stuff. 
I just remember seeing a lot of, of trailers for Canadian films that were airing only on Super Channel that, that to this day remain elusive. Uh, they never got released on VHS and they've kind of, I mean, maybe they're being excavated now in this uh, boutique uh, Blu-ray era, which is great. Um, but yeah, uh, I don't know. That that was how I read them. Um, I don't know I'm, I, what you thought about them, but. First choice seemed to be HBO to me. Like it was the American style Canadian pay TV channel, which had the most money to burn. Super Channel wound up being smarter in the long run because they had all kinds of movies. They had double the number of new titles a month that First Choice had. First Choice, when they went on the air as the big movie channel, only had 22 different movies, which they would cycle in and out of on a 24-hour-a-day schedule. People started wondering why First Choice cost so much more money than Super Channel did when they actually had less programming. They had boxing and they had concerts and things like that. But Super Channel, on top of having 50 titles in their first month, also had hockey games and later baseball games and things. So it seemed like more bang for your buck. C Channel's survival strategy was that people aren't going to order all three channels. So they're going to be the natural second choice for anybody who buys one of the movie channels because they're a little bit lower priced. The problem with C-Channel, one of the many problems they had, was that they only started broadcasting at 5 in the afternoon. So they had eight hours of programming a day. To give you an idea of the launch of these three channels, when Super Channel went on the air, they started with Star Wars. When First Choice went on the air, they they showed a, a Who concert from the year before that had already been on, <laughs> you know, tel- commercial television. And uh, they only got around to showing Star Wars the following day. What was their other clunker that they started with? They had another- uh, It was um, For Your Eyes Only. That was the, the That's first right. film they showed. When C-Channel first went on the air, their first program was a production of Swan Lake by the Royal Ballet followed by uh, Francois Truffaut's The Last Metro, dubbed into English. One problem with all the C-Channel programming is they did say that they showed foreign language films, but for the most part, they showed the English dubs. No subtitles. You'll get the finest films being made today, not just Hollywood's best, but the biggest international films. Films like La Cage au Fond. An imaginary line, the imaginary line that separates a man from a woman. Then you merely walk. C-Channel's mandate was that their programming was a balance of 40% movies and 40% stage shows. So that would be theater and concerts. And then they had a block of children's programming in the when they started their programming day that was a service within the service called Odyssey. C-Channel was in big trouble from the start. They had very expensive marketing buys. Like they took out full page ads in all the papers. They, You know what they kind of reminded me of a little bit was when Krusty the Clown uh, got his show taken over by Sideshow Bob, and then he turned it into an artsy program totally. and was very snobby about the kind of programs that he had. Like C-Channel would, would where they were kind of like asking for trouble because they described their typical viewer as smarter than the average person and more refined taste, more interest in the arts and dance and ballet. And uh, they... But the problem with the early days of pay TV, thanks to arrangements like First Choice showing Playboy programming, was that pay TV was sex, violence, and Playboy. C-Channel was saying, well, people think that pay TV is just where sex and violence happens, but we're the classier channel. We show more upscale uh, programming. We don't stoop 
so low. And, you know, so they kind of came across as a snobby art service. And the proof was in the pudding. A couple of months after that, uh, they started uh, calculating the number of subscribers for these channels. First Choice had about 300,000 subscribers in the early days, whereas C Channel had something like 25,000. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 looking back, I, I don't know what they were smoking over there at C Channel because it was l- absolutely incredible programming. I mean, I've come across tapes uh, that people recorded C Channel back in the day. And, you know, one tape has, you know, it's like a Dave Brubeck concert followed by uh, a Godard film followed by all this like really spooky uh, indigenous uh, films that were made by the NFB. Like, man, I, I mean, if this was on now, I would keep it locked on that channel. Um, but in 83, uh, I mean, let's remember, we're making fun of them showing Star Wars. Star Wars had only come out on on home video, I think, the year before, and it didn't show up on network television until 84, uh, I believe. So Star Wars, even though it, w- it was already this massive cultural phenomena and had, had already had a sequel and there was another sequel coming out that year, it being on TV was a huge deal. Uh, for mo- for that, and you're right. That's what that's what the punters wanted was Star Wars, not Swan Lake, you know. The programming at Sea Channel was very ambitious. They showed the Royal Shakespeare Company's production of Nicholas Nickleby, which is eight and a half hours. They showed Berlin Alexanderplatz in its entirety. Sea Channel reminded me a lot of the Z Channel in the United States. Uh, Ed, tell my listeners about Z Channel. So Z Channel was one of the early, early pay TV services. Z Channel was only available to a very small part of the Los Angeles uh, area in California. However, it was sort of the heart of Hollywood. So the people that subscribed to Z Channel were people that worked in the industry. And it was, I believe, the first couple of years, a pretty standard issue pay TV service. Uh, it was showing you know classic Hollywood films, but it eventually was taken over by a programmer whose name escapes me, who ended up being a, a bit of a character, but he was a visionary in that he saw that things like showing films in their proper aspect ratio was important. Showing films with subtitles was important doing sort of film festivals of different directors. And again, it's one of those things that you, you, you read about this. Now you think, wow, you know, people in the, in the seventies had access to all this incredible programming and and they just weren't ready for it, so it unfortunately didn't didn't last. And I think the guy killed his wife and then killed himself yeah. and had absolutely horrible ending. There's a lovely documentary by made by uh, Jan Cassavetes, and I think it captures kind of what we're talking about in a nutshell: the excitement of pay TV uh, when it first came out. And I mean. We've sort of glossed over this, but yeah, it was there was no video stores. They were they were just sort of taking hold. There weren't VCRs. There were rep theaters showing great stuff, but you know all of that stuff required quite a bit of effort. the The beauty of pay TV was that you could be laying in bed and uh, watching all this wonderful stuff. So C Channel certainly was a lot like Z Channel. However. I think later on, a lot of the stuff Z Channel was doing ended up uh, on on Super Channel as well. So we can talk about that in a bit. 
Well, C Channel, for instance, showed uh, Australian New Wave movies like Breaker Morant and Storm Boy, and they showed uh, Dusan Makavesev's Montenegro, which was a very spicy, uh, you know, for adults only art film. They showed La Cage aux Folles. They showed all these uh, classy pr- programs. They also showed On Golden Pond and The French Lieutenant's Woman, as did all three pay TV services. That was the common complaint about the early days of pay TV. Cable cost $13 or something back then. First choice cost 20. Super Channel and C Channel cost 16 each. So why would you spend 50 or $60 a month on pay TV? <laughs> and, and everybody's showing yeah. On Golden Pond at the same yeah. time. And you can watch On Golden Pond 12 times a day if you're lucky. <laughs> um, so at some point, the market had to settle itself out, um, and it was only four months into the launch of C-Channel that they became in big trouble. They were looking for bank loans. They were in communication with the CBC about uh, CBC taking over C-Channel, and they did a very strange uh, thing towards the end of the of C-Channel's time where they had a survive-a-thon where various cable companies unscrambled the C-Channel signal for four days so that and and c channel by this point was now running shows uh more than eight hours a day they they had expanded their programming day i don't think it was 24 hours though but it was a little more than eight hours a day so they showed programming to potential subscribers with on-air requests to subscribe from celebrity supporters of the channel like andrea martin and karen kane and they were actually asking people to sign their friends up to double the number of subscriptions all of this effort rustled up another five thousand subscribers they were expecting fifty thousand so after a month c channel went into receivership yeah man i mean it was again it felt like it, the, all, all of the promise that had happened at the beginning of 83, by the time we got to the summer of 83, it was very apparent that this wasn't going to be an easy, easy money for these guys. And there maybe wasn't the amount of interest in pay TV that they all had thought uh, was there. They thought it was in the bag. Um, not only did C Channel go under, but you had uh, both First Choice Super Channel in in, in financial dire straits because they weren't hitting the subscription numbers and the cost of having to fight really for the scraps uh, was killing them. And so I think they sort of rearranged the deck chairs on the Titanic. They brought in first choice, brought in uh, this guy named Fred Clink, Clinkhammer. He was the head programmer at city TV. Uh, There's that name again. And Phyllis Switzer, who was one of the creators of City TV, also was brought in to sort of save First Choice. And it's amazing to me because these are people, these were Toronto people, born and bred, uh, who had a very canny understanding of negotiating with these hotheads from Hollywood to get better deals, to get better programming. But by that point, First Choice had gotten rid of Playboy because they just couldn't go on without the Disney content, without the family content. Super Channel had started to get a lot more salacious. They had started to show a lot more adult uh, content in the day, I might add as well. I think that was one of the things um, that I wanted to talk to you about. You know, full disclosure, I didn't have any of these services. 
I remember they did the free weekends occasionally. I remember friends lending me tapes that they had recorded of certain things. And I don't remember the details, but somehow my mom entered a contest and we won a subscription to Super Channel. And it was like, just, I remember every detail of it, the guy coming and the little box getting set up and <laughs> they, they gave me the, you know, they gave us this, this very glossy magazine, which was the program guide, which they published every month for super channel. And I mean, it was like winning the lottery. Really. I remember the, the cover of that magazine that month was Annie, the, uh, the 1982 version of Annie. And I studied that magazine because again, I was this kind of blooming cinephile and it wasn't uh, easy to get information back then um but those program guides were full of gold because they not only had all these titles but they had the year they had usually mentioned the director the actors in it um the running the running time to this day i can still cite off running times and and years of films that were burned in from looking through that magazine. But yeah, when I first did start to look at super channel on a regular basis, uh, it became apparent that they, they weren't too worried about showing uh, graphic content in the early afternoon. Um, the aforementioned Videodrome I saw for the first time on super channel at like one o'clock in the afternoon on a, on a Sunday. And it was just a life-altering screening yeah. uh, that stays with me to this day. So bless them for doing stuff like that. But yes, all back to the point that it was uh, it was a mess in that first six months. It was a terrible mess. Something very special can happen to your home. Your home is your entertainment ticket when you connect. Super Channel. See Porky's. Sophie's Choice. And only Super Channel offers you a 30-day money-back guarantee. Super Channel, television's brightest star. They spent so much money on marketing, and they didn't bring enough back in in terms of subscribers. Um, within a year or so of the launch of pay TV, more licenses were given out by the CRTC for more specialty channels. They sort of uh, they they described this wave of things as specialty channels, and that included channels that remain to this day, including TSN and Much Music. Um, they smartly uh, bundled these things. So by this point, First Choice and Super Channel had merged. So they were first choice with a little star asterisk and super channel. It was like really impossible to understand why they maintained the two names. Were they known as first choice in one part of the country and super channel in another or something? Not not until later. It was it was literally they just stuck the two name the logos and names together. Um, it was super confusing because yeah, they you know they retained the the. Super Channel uh, look in terms of the graphics, they they deep sixed all the first choice graphics, kept the Super Channel graphics, but it became first choice and Super Channel. And as you mentioned, because of TSN and Much Music uh, coming in the fall of '84, you had the situation where they were no longer showing sporting events, uh, music videos. I mean, we didn't even talk about that. M music videos was this emerging thing back then. And, and that was uh, uh, one of the ways that you could see them was on between the films on both of those services. So then you have this dedicated channel showing only music videos. 
it becomes less uh, of a, uh, you know, of an alluring thing to have that on Super Channel and First Choice. So all that compounded, they had this arranged marriage, very hastily arranged marriage. And that lasted a few years and then they eventually broke it off. So Super Channel controlled the West, I believe West of Manitoba and, and the West of Manitoba. And First Choice was Ontario and the East. The other thing that I was very interested in as a teenager was the the scrambled signal of pay TV. I would I would start tinkering with the knob on my TV to see that if I could synchronize my reception with the scrambled signal to be able to watch movies, including the racy movies that would be on late at night. I think that was a rite of passage for for young men my age was <laughs> trying oh, uh- to see the uh, the forbidden signal. A hundred percent. And I think too, uh, the audio, which you were, you know, you got the audio clear, uh, made it all that more interesting because your imagination kind of painted the picture, whether it was somebody, you know, in a horror film and it's somebody screaming and you're, you're, I mean, I remember being kind of interested in horror movies because I was, I was afraid of them when I was young. So yeah, hearing like somebody screaming and, and trying to figure out what is happening in this, you know, in this picture, uh, or somebody moaning, uh, equally interesting, but it was, um, yeah, I knew people that also, I guess this was the age of, there were guys that would come to your house and fiddle with your box or give you a, a bootleg box. And it would allow you to see these unscramble. You know, there were people that would be able to unscramble all of those pay TV services, and brag about how they they got all of them, but they didn't pay for it. And the pay TV preview channels would then run commercials where they would tell you not to steal pay TV signals. <laughs> and uh, there was one where the announcer said, "If you're caught, you could face significant fines, and in some cases, imprisonment." <laughs> <laughs> like warning you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it was like you know, back in the day, before DVDs. Uh, you got that warning that you couldn't skip uh, that I think it just was a, a really loud piece of music and it showed somebody downloading illegally a film. And, you know, it, this this is part of every new technology is the, the scare films to stop you from stealing it. But, yeah, man, I mean, it was it was just a really wild and very exciting time. Um, I feel like a, it was my film school. I mean, I just learned so much um, from before I had the service, just from seeing those free, free weekends, uh, and then, and then having it, um, and it never was the same again because we all got it. It just became part of life, right? That there was movie channels and then there was, you know, a whole bunch of them. And then there was downloading and, and, and it's ubiquitous and it doesn't mean anything now. I mean, the, you know, the idea that you can go on Netflix and there's, what is it? However many titles, it's like going to get a glass of water. It's not exciting, but I still carry. A, I feel like I carry a bit of that memory of it, and I don't take it for granted. Um, but I also think we've lost that art of the curation of these channels. I mean, there were programmers that were very smart, and I look at these old uh, program guides now, and I mean, some of the stuff they did was wild. I mean. You know, one of my favorite memories was seeing both versions of uh, Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in America 
you know, they showed the director's cut and the the horrible, you know, butchered theatrical cut. And they sold it as like, watch them both and make up your mind, like which one was better. Um, you know, and that was in, in what, 1980, 1985? I mean, just mm-hmm. stuff that, again, is very, it's very, in the age of having the Criterion uh, streaming service and a, a wall full of Criterion Blu-rays, it seems very pedestrian, but it was, uh, it was wild. I found out about filmmakers like David Cronenberg through watching pay TV, not from <laughs> videotape and stuff like that. Like, how was a teenager supposed to rent any of Cronenberg's movies? So you had to depend on things like pay TV to be able to expose these things to you. I was obsessed with Brian De Palma's Scarface because it was uh, just so intense to see this super violent movie for grownups uh, on television. And my education continued when I would watch these movies in their proper aspect ratios because pay TV always showed things in full frame. Uh, so, you know, movies that I thought I knew very well from watching them on pay TV, I would re-see in proper formats. I learned so much about the Canadian tax shelter industry from all of the movies that would show, like they showed everything pretty much like a man, a woman and a bank and uh, agency with Lee majors. And, uh, you know, like they just showed all sorts of uh, amazing Canadian films because of the CanCon uh, expectations meant that any crappy Canadian tax shelter movie wound up on pay TV. So I saw Stone Cold Dead and all these great uh, films that I would never have seen any other way. Totally. I, I mean, my favorite, uh, big childhood favorite was uh, The Dog Who Stopped the War. Uh, you know, Quebec cinema that uh, it was dubbed, um, which was unfortunate. But still, I mean, there, there really was no other outlet. Um, and as well, they they showed a lot of international stuff. I mean, they had, if I recall correctly, they had a deal with uh, George Harrison's handmade films. So there'd actually be a section in the program guide saying, here's the handmade films that we're showing this month, uh, which, you know, I, I don't I wouldn't have known about all that stuff had it not been for that service. Eventually, the cable companies got their acts together and these new uh, services got smart, lowered the price of a subscription. I got uh, pay TV in my house when they finally offered the bundle of TSN, Much Music, and and First Choice Super Channel. The Satisfaction Uh, (laughs) (laughs) three-pack. That's exactly what it was called. Um, So, you know, I mean, the pay TV preview channel was very enticing to me about – you know, the, all the movies that I could be watching, uncut and commercial-free, 24 hours a day. Uh, very, very exciting. But it wasn't until it became affordable, uh, bundled with TSN and much. That was the genius decision. And we have uh, all three of these channels to this day. Much still exists, even though all they do is show ridiculousness 23 and a half hours a day or something. They don't show music videos anymore. TSN now has five channels. And... Um, what was First Choice Super Channel turned into First Choice in one side of the country and Movie Central, a.k.a. Super Channel, on another side of the country. Then that turned into the movie network, and it is now what we know as Crave. That's right. Yeah. So you uh, you can still subscribe to Crave channels that have a program schedule, but you can also stream all of their content to your heart's content if you buy that service. I got to say, Jesse, the, the service that exists right now that reminds me the most of the the golden era of of sort of super channel first choice is uh hollywood suite Mm -hmm. um 
because they still prioritize that idea of programming and curation. They have the dedicated decades. So obviously, you watch the 80s channel, you're going to see a lot of the same titles that you saw on on the pay TV back in the 80s. But it has the spirit, uh, which I miss. I mm-hmm. miss the, that each movie uh, warranted a fanfare, you know, like it was this big animation and music cue and we're watching a movie. I mean, it was like this everywhere. It was like this on network television as well. Whereas now most services, it's just movies, 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 movies. It doesn't, it doesn't warrant any kind of excitement, but they still kind of have that. So that's cool. And they do show the great stuff still, the great garbage. Like uh, (laughs) when I was watching Hollywood Suite, a couple of Christmases ago, Agency came on and it was like, hell yes. <laughs> like oh, that man. is the kind of garbage that showed on pay TV all the time. Uh, no, absolutely. I'm glad that somebody's still carrying that torch. You'd never see anything like that. Like the kind of stuff that you would see on Tubi was, is the kind of stuff that you might see on, on uh, Hollywood Suite now. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, the, the, the Canon, uh, the Canon Canon was, was a huge part of, pay TV back then. And it was that kind of whiplash you get from, you know, seeing, uh, you know, a, like a, like a lower tier Canon title. Um, and then, and then something from Australia that was really well done and really thoughtful. So, uh, that, that stuff stays with you. Um, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention an, an another incredible thing. First choice super channel did for a number of years was run a contest called the great Canadian shorts contest, which in a lot of ways was was a bit of a proto YouTube because they invited people to make short films and uh, send them in and they screened them you know throughout the month uh, between the bigger titles and then you filled out these forms that were in the magazine and and every I forget it was three or four times a year they'd award the the film that won the filmmaker with a certain amount of money. And I can't remember if they got a Sony high eight camera or some, something like that. But, um, I get at, at retro Ontario, I get a lot of requests from people and most of the time I'm able to fill, even if it isn't the actual thing they're looking for, we can confirm this is what it was called or that. But a lot of times people are trying to remember things they saw on first choice super channel and I realized it's not a it's not a movie. It's one of these great Canadian shorts, which a lot of them weren't great. Let's be honest. But it was again, where would where else would you see somebody's you know horror movie shot in black and white on Super Eight, um, like in prime time uh, across Canada in the eighties? It was it was absolutely wild. Yeah, they they had a very imaginative solutions for the fact that sometimes movies are 125 minutes long, which leaves you with 25 minutes of filler before the next uh, time block. Uh, And they would populate them with trailers and packages of uh, previews and short films. They had fun with uh, trying to fill 24 hours a day of programming. None of those programs were indicated in the program guide. You just stumbled across all that stuff. Yeah, but, you just uh, keep keep it locked on the channel. And I think, too, that was part of it was uh, never quite, even if you had looked at the schedule, you never quite knew what you were going to get because it could be, as we said, something absolutely lowbrow or it could be something highbrow that you wouldn't have cottoned onto with the title or the or the picture of it. Um, and again, I, I, I think we're romanticizing that being that young 
when you have all of this free time, um, now it's, it's difficult to get anything done, right? Even the stuff you've got piled up that you know you want to watch. I miss that era. And, and I think Super Channel was just a wonderful thing to, to have locked on uh, and experience all that content. We should say, as we wrap up our discussion about Canadian pay TV, that C Channel was founded by a man named Edgar Cowan. And I do want to acknowledge the passing of his son, Noah Cowan, who died this week in Los Angeles, 55, uh, far too young. I, I understand a little bit better from reading about Sea Channel and Edgar Cowan's plans to sort of bring art and culture into people's homes. Uh, this helps to explain Noah a little bit to me, who I worked with at Bell Lightbox. He was the artistic director of Lightbox from its inception until 2013. He was the former co-director of TIFF. He was a program who started the Midnight Madness series and who oversaw Cinematheque Ontario, a true hero of cinema culture in this city and beyond, and I do want to acknowledge his passing. I was also very uh, fortunate to be able to, to work with him and to know him, and uh, I will miss him. I had not made the connection that he his father was Edgar, um, but I do know a lot about the history of City TV, and I, I believe his father's role in City TV is is extremely underrated. I think he was a crucial uh, part of that that gang of four. Uh, Jerry Grafstein, Phyllis Switzer, Moses Neimer, and Edgar Cowan. And everything Edgar Cowan did afterwards just just proved that point. And, and it sounds like he had a wonderful son, and it's, it's, it's awful that he's passed. I think, I mean, this is a hallmark of getting old, is realizing golden ages happen and you don't realize you're living through them. Right. And as somebody that's really into film and, and film history, I, I look back on that time, that kind of early eighties time as being just an unbelievable golden age. If you lived in Toronto, certainly if you lived in New York uh, or you lived in London or you lived in, in Paris, but for Toronto, the idea that we had at that time, still all of those, rep theaters um, going pretty pretty gangbusters. So you had that as an option, right? The fact that you had um, a program like El Weost, Saturday Night at the Movies on the weekend or Magic Shadows throughout the week showing classic Hollywood films, like studio Hollywood films. You had City TV showing Shaw Brothers uh, and Italian horror in the middle of the night. You had CFMT showing, you know, Italian, what was it called? Uh, tele, tele, uh, telecine. telecine. <laughs> uh, you know, erotic Italian uh, films on a, on a weekend. And then you had the, the pay TV services showing that all that stuff. Yes, now all of this stuff, you can find it on, I guess, if you go on all the streaming services or if you go on BitTorrent, you can do all this stuff. But man alive, that was a just a magic time. It had all those avenues to explore. And I think not having an IMDb or not having that centralized resource that you could just go to uh, made it even more special. When I started this podcast, I put a list together of all the people I wanted on 
to appear on the show and you were on the list. I'm so happy to finally get you here. Can you tell my listeners about Retro Ontario, your wonderful ongoing archive? Oh, thank you so much, Jesse. Um, so Retro Ontario started many, many years ago, really coincided with the, the creation of YouTube because it gave a place for a lot of this nonsense that I had accumulated on VHS tapes to live and to be shared. Uh, it started really with just a group of, uh, of my friends. You know, we had a lot of this stuff laying around and thought, okay, it should be online. And it kind of took on uh, a life of its own and, and became something that was taken a little bit more seriously maybe than, than I had envisioned in the beginning. And it's, it's sort of, become my career now working with a lot of organizations to digitize their archives or figure out what should be done with their archives. And I think, you know, I've become somewhat of a, of a champion of, of this Canadian content that fell between the cracks that maybe people forgot about it or, or some people didn't think it was that important. A lot of it is this ephemeral kind of stuff that we're talking about, you know, things that ran, on channels between the main events uh, that some of which a lot of incredible people worked on. And it's just a great feeling to be able to put it back out, have it be back out in circulation across all of the social media networks, but we never know how long, I mean, that too will be fleeting. I'm sure at some point that will all disappear, but you know, for the time being, it's a, it's a fun thing to do. Yeah. And, and it, and it helps to fill uh, sort of an education gap in this country because uh, I don't know what it is why older Canadian programming is unavailable in the modern age, like why CBC doesn't show their old programs, why TVO doesn't show their old programs. It ha may have to do with rights issues. It may have to do with licensing fees and royalties for music in, in the programs and things. But um, even in this sort of the 500 channel universe that everybody was so excited about, you don't see so much uh, old programming and, and we're kind of dependent in some ways on YouTube and on people like you uh, digitizing these things that uh, have an incredibly small audience, but an incredibly enthusiastic audience. Like, you know, nobody's going to uh, you know, expend that much energy getting all the episodes of Timothy Pilgrim back on uh, TV <laughs> Ontario or whatever. But if I went to YouTube and I typed up Timothy Pilgrim, I'd probably find a couple of episodes on it. Yeah, there, no, I know that are be that are only there because somebody taped it on VHS one day. Yeah, I, lo I love that. It, there's this. We live in this age of kind of the citizen archivists, uh, people who had their own collection that nobody's paying them to do this. They're doing it because they want. They they think. Timothy Pilgrim or whatever it is, it should be out there. And uh, everything you mentioned in terms of why a lot of this Canadian content isn't available, you know, it is, it is certainly rights issues or certainly licensing issues, but a lot of it is just apathy. And it's, it's a terrible, terrible Canadian thing. I think it extends into the film world as well. It's just this idea that somehow our shit is not as important as American shit. And it drives me up the wall because I think there's, plenty of evidence uh if you're if you just want to come at this from a financial perspective of is there money is there interest yes there is and i mean thankfully there's a lot of people now in the ring younger people certainly that are fighting that fight and it's it's refreshing to see these things are also at the mercy of uh the ownership and the consolidation of media 
uh, ownership in this country. For example, CP24, when it was run by City TV, the 24-hour news channel, they did fantastic stuff in the middle of the night where they would show old episodes of City Pulse from like 1978. Yeah, this day in in history, yeah. Yeah, it was this day in history. So they'd show an episode of City Pulse tonight, November 25th, 1981. And it was mesmerizing to watch what Toronto used to look like. That is no longer available because uh, CP24 is owned by Bell Media and Rogers owns what used to be City TV. So for all I know, they threw all those VTR tapes out. They... In fact, did in one of the greatest acts of um, vandalism, cultural vandalism committed in this country. And, you know, it was sad when David Onley passed away a, a few weeks ago. People remembered, oh, yeah, CP24 used to be this very thoughtful news channel where, you know, there would be a program for 90 minutes of, you know, David Onley talking about technology talking about things to be positive about you know space exploration or whatever it was and we look at it now that it's owned by a company like bell and it's just city panic 24 right it's just it's aping the american style and so many of these visionaries in toronto certainly uh worked so hard for for us to go uh, on a different path that it is uh it's heartbreaking to see it undone. So, yeah, I, I think you're doing a lot of this this good work too by having your podcast and and talking about this stuff because it is it, Toronto was a huge part of all this and uh, international. Now the world knows about our city, so isn't that great? Yeah, yeah, but we used to be way cooler. Yes, that's, exactly. <laughs> that's a drum that I'll Hard keep pounding believe. on this yes. show. <laughs> So, Ed, uh, where can people find you on social media? Uh, so, yes, Retro Ontario is on all social media channels. The easiest thing to do is to probably go to our website, which is RetroOntario.com, and you can see all of all of our stuff there. Uh, YouTube is kind of the main mothership, I would say, where all the all the fun video content is. But, yeah, like I said, it's kind of spun off in in different directions uh, across the different platforms. Don't know what's going to happen on Twitter, but uh, it's it's fun finding out, right? Ed Conroy, thank you so much for joining me. Friend of the show, please come back anytime. Thank you so much, my man. Before we go, just a reminder that we do have a Patreon, and patrons help to make this show possible. To receive access to bonus episodes every month, as well as to support the show directly, please go to patreon.com slash junkfilter. And please follow us on Twitter at JunkFilterPod. We'll have another episode in the next few days. The original music for this program was provided by Marker Starling. My name is Jesse Hawkins. Thank you for listening. <laughs>